0: Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by
1: Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are continuing our coverage of Black Corfu by Karen Russell, published in 2018. we read it in Orange World and other stories, and this is our discussion episode.
0: And as we said last time, we are doing this extra episode because it was commissioned by one of our listeners, one of our Patreon supporters. We just want to say thank you for commissioning us to do this. It's a huge part of keeping Clay Temple Media on the air. And also, we love this story and are so glad for the opportunity to have read it.
1: Yeah, I've been tra- petitioning to get Karen Russell on the ballots for quite some time, and I'm so glad we've been able to read her thanks to a commission. We love doing these commissions especially for these reasons uh, we love sharing with our listeners for those who want us to talk about what they love we'd love to experience those things and talk about them but we're here to talk about black Corfu so let's just get right into the discussion
0: yeah I'm excited to get into this I've got you know a number of big items on my outline like we're gonna be talking about race and class we're going to be talking about rumor and obsession for sure but I actually just want to start with some Plot stuff, and I, 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 want us to to think about this story from the perspective of someone other than the the doctor. And really, what I want us to do is is think about what this story is like from the perspective of Hury Demasto. If he's an honest and reliable narrator. Which is really just to ask Did the doctor really make a mistake with the Countess Nikonitich? And is her undead body really walking around? Uh, maybe also, did the doctor have sex with that body? Or did Yuri make up all or some of that story?
1: Uh, I think he made up all or some of that story. <laughs> Um, I I think it's closer to all than some. It is possible that the doctor made a mistake, though I think it's also fair to say that Yuri is in no position to judge whether or not the doctor made a mistake. I think what we're meant to see in the contrast of the doctor and Yuri is people who are in positions they don't feel they ought to be in, one person has been conditioned to live in that Sort of world with double consciousness to be less than. And so takes his station with uh, a big chip on his shoulder, but also with the, uh, I don't know, humility, I suppose, that has been drilled into him as the result of a lifetime of injustices and slights. And Yuri Damasto has no patience for being treated as less than. We, we talked a little bit about this in our recap episode. And so he has the means to shut this person down. And that is more what the story feels like it's about to me than uh, whether or not Yuri is right. Yeah, we're going to
0: get to all of that in the, the next section here, the next segment of the discussion <laughs> I want to do. But I am going to keep pushing you on this this plot stuff because you you really didn't give me an argument here. Do you
1: think <laughs> I evaded it? Then? I do think you evaded <laughs> it and I'm not going to
0: allow you to do it. Um, so because, because I do think that it matters. I think that this is actually a story that is intentionally, right? Russell here is intentionally asking us to question what is really happening. And in particular, right, the last line of this story is maybe I did make a mistake and clearly he did make a mistake in performing this surgery on himself but the question is is he admitting that maybe he actually did make a mistake with the the countess Nikon, nikonitich after all even though he's been so adamant that he couldn't possibly have made a mistake perhaps he was just never really examining that so i want to actually try to examine the objective evidence as best we can i mean the story also might just be about like how everything would have been better if he had just admitted to the possibility that he'd made a mistake and said,
1: I'm sorry, right? That's a big part of what that last line is. Yeah, I think that's what the last line is really about is that's a true humbling. He's he's actually saying like, I guess I could have made a mistake. It's conceivable. Whereas before, he was incapable of admitting that he could make a mistake. Um, and even though his wife is like, "Hey, you're only human," and I think the more he dug in his heels, the the nastier the rumor got because people didn't like the way he was presenting himself as perfect uh, because he had all these other societal ills kind of cast upon him. But he just needed to say, I, I could have made a mistake. I really don't think I did. Let's see if the body turns up and if she's wandering. But the way he attacked the problem is certainly part of the stakes of the story. Um, I don't think he made a mistake. I'm going to be honest. I, I, I don't think he... Uh, had anything to do. I don't think he interfered with the body of the countess. Um, I think his sickness, hearing some of the rumors, like he gets physically sick, he throws up. I think his pleas with the father, he just wants the father to know that his daughter was in good hands. He has his own daughters. And I think he has these moments of empathy and recognition uh, with Peter Nikonitich. So I I really don't think he made a mistake. Um, I think he needed to be more humble throughout the course of the story and it probably would have gone much better for him. Yeah,
0: this is my feeling as well. But I think we do have to ask the question then, what happened to the body?
1: I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I the whole uh, mechanics of needing hamstrings to punch your way through a coffin and claw yourself out of the ground is really like puzzling to me. I mean, are they doing that with their legs? why couldn 't they just drag themselves along the ground? I think that would be a horrifying sight the The kind of uh, dirty mechanics of this story are are puzzling and mysterious, and I like that about the story to be clear. I like how we 're led to this realm of imagination where some somehow cutting the hamstrings of a dead person means they can 't use their arms or <laughs> crawl i mean the the accusation leveled against him at the end that his child can crawl around. I mean, which means it's using upper body strength, at least to some degree. Shouldn't mean that bodies can crawl. I don't know how they get out of graves. I really don't know what what happened to the Countess, and I don't think we're meant to know. Um, But she's a tool being used by the wealthy, or maybe even Yuri DeMusto, to ensure that their own reputation is not stained by, uh, the false accusation against the doctor.
0: Well, I think. Yeah, the question of, of how do zombies actually work in this story is a good question, but I think this is actually where this really is is using the tools of magical realism, where we're given a bunch of incongruities and told simply that they do work and that we don't have to know how they work here, which is different than the way that uh, a hardcore fantasist will will write a story, right, where the rules really do matter and things need to and, and things need to mesh, right. It's different than the way Gene Wolfe would have written this story for sure where, you know, as an engineer, he would have thought through all of these things and have had answers for them. Here, in fact, they're supposed to not have answers and it's supposed to feel a little uncomfortable, I think. But I do wonder what happened to the body. I don't have a good answer either, but I just have a hard time envisioning this 13-year-old digging up this grave taking the body somewhere, hiding it where no one else can find it. People are actively looking for a body walking around, at least if maybe not hiding somewhere uh, where it could have gone. So to me, this is one of the, the puzzles that we're left with here at the end of the story that maybe suggests that the doctor did actually make a mistake, even though that's not really my instinctive reading of the story.
1: It's entirely possible. I mean, they are in an island with sailors coming on and off the island all the time, there's you know, brothels and uh, cave systems. I feel like there are dozens of places to hide a body. I mean, you can't just throw a body out uh, and have the tide bring it back in. But if there are sailors involved uh, or if there's the cave system, which I think... Part of what is brilliant about this story is Karen Russell kind of makes it impossible for us to imagine just how any one person would get a body anywhere without the cooperation of others. It's an hour long hike through like briar bushes and rocky terrain to get to some of these caves. The whole like sailor economy seems pretty tightly and close knit, uh, though we have to assume that some of the wealth. Uh, from the families on this island does come from merchants. We don't know who the other accusers are besides Yuri DeMasto. So she just poses the mystery and then gives us ways in which it's implausible that we might be able to solve it, but lets us know this whole system is kind of corrupt. And so any of these might work. And I think where this is
0: important is that we are now going to talk about race and class. That's where we're going to go next. But I think that we need to lay our cards on the table about whether or not we think the doctor actually committed the crime that he's accused of, because that's going to color the way that we talk about these other issues and the, you know, the justice system here, the justness of the, the social system here on this island. But it is, I think, totally possible that other readers will have a different reading of what happened to the body and whether or not the countess actually was turned into a zombie because the doctor didn't do the surgery correctly. I don't see the evidence for that really in the text. It's not, you know, neither of us seem to have that. Neither of us have that reading of it, but I would love to hear from people who do have that reading of it. So, of course, we'll invite you to, you know, come to the forum, come to Reddit, tweet at us, whatever, let us know about, you know, where you see that and also then how you think that affects all the other issues that we're about to talk about.
1: Yeah, I mean, just my final argument here is that this doctor is teaching a student. And so it's highly implausible that he would do something incorrectly or carelessly and especially that he would interfere with the body on any level with a brand new student present who he already suspects kind of hates him. Um, that's just kind of baked into, I think, what, it means to be a teacher, so I mean that's that's kind of my main argument
0: here, right? I give zero credence to the necrophilia accusation, but I think that's a great observation too. That that in fact, if the doctor were to have made a mistake here, this would be a doc uh, this would this would be a mistake rooted in carelessness, in absent-mindedness, in having done this procedure so many times before, and you're you know thinking about what you're going to do when you get off work and so on, and that's where you make a mistake like this. But he is actively demonstrating demonstrating. demonstrating the technique to someone else. So he's hyper-focused on what he's doing would be my sense. I hadn't thought about that. That's a great observation. Well, let's get to the real thematic heart of this story, which is the issue of race and class here. And maybe let's start by just cataloging the ways that the doctor's blackness both defines and limits him in the society. Really, let's characterize the ways that race matters for him, the ways that race matters in this society. I mean, I think the most obvious one is that he can't be a doctor.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is first and foremost, that he has this this kind of genius, uh, or at least he believes he does, that no one is willing to recognize merely as a result of a contingency of skin color. And that's a real problem. It's not the the contents of his mind or his capability that are causing people to make decisions about his future. It's his skin color. There's also the issue we brought up in the recap of the, the different funerals where people live. He lives. B- below the city. I mean, there's a real upstairs downstairs sort of situation going on here. Um, his commute to work is terrible, and he doesn't even have like audiobooks or podcasts <laughs> to listen to. Um, uh, while the other doctors are, are kind of doing what he thinks to be silly practices, even at this time bloodletting, he thinks of them as disfiguring living people in order to heal them. And you can tell the way he's presented to us that in his mind, what he wants to do is find better procedures that could help the living. And that's kind of kept from him in some way. Um, And so he has this sense that he is not able to live up to his full potential because of his skin color and that he should... The way he's treated even by the Jesuit is that he should be grateful that he's allowed to have any medical practice at all. And it's just, it's not enough for him. Um, his family position, how easy it is, how 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 fragile his situation is, he's constantly aware of, like how easy it is for the people in the town to believe that this black doctor is doing dark deeds. Um, that's not something that the other surgeons who are like putting leeches on people and doing weird stuff have to deal with. And the fact that, You know, he's doing the best he can for his family. Not only does he not have any sons, he only has daughters. Uh, So he's doubly aware of, like, kind of what their limitations are going to be growing up as well, though his mother is a good uh, role model for him. So he's dealing with these constant injustices and slights uh, throughout the story and, and that are just make up his mental world, his relationship to the external world.
0: Right, because it's not just what things does he have access to. It's not just like what careers does he have access to, even though he might have the merit for them, or where can he live, right? Even if he had the wealth to go live up on the the cliff top and be uh, you know away from the miasma of the 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 beach area, the dock area where you know all the where kids are dying at a much higher rate than up top, he still wouldn't be allowed to move up there. Those are real constraints that are imposed on him because of his race. but it is not just that, it is also simply the way that people treat him, the way that people respond to him, the way they look at him because he is other, because he is different, that really characterizes his his sense of self and his sense of place in this society for, for himself and for his whole family. And we know that from a young age, he was aware of this, right? We get this great passage where he's thinking about his mother Uh, walking through the town and being derided, being catcalled at, uh, derided for her her skin color, derided for her blackness and just being harassed in general. And the way that he reacts to, to that, both at the time and then also the way he thinks about it now, the way he recognizes now, the way that at the time he thought that she was wrong to not be confronting people with her humanity but she but of course as an adult he now realizes that what she was doing was protecting her child because he now has to do that as well and he has a real rage about having to do that right that he has to keep his head down that he has to dehumanize himself has in order to protect his family from something more from an abuse that would be more than verbal
1: right uh, we we mentioned in the recap episode uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's concept of double consciousness which is like not only who am i as a subjective person that is experiencing the world but also being forced to internalize this other persona of like who do you say that i am who is society telling me that i am and you know Du Bois is saying like don't internalize that fight against that but you know, that for him is a core experience of, of black people in America um, after the Civil War, uh, you know, in the 1890s when he was writing The Souls of Black Folk. And I think Karen Russell has has demonstrated that in this story as well, that this kind of who do you say that I am into the internalizing the answer to that question is what destroys the doctor's ability to have his own Consciousness. He 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 he. Not only has this experience of double consciousness, but he internalizes the wrong voices. He's kind of forced to, um, because he's been so worn down by the endless slights and injustices that he encounters. Though he's performing a crucial service for the people on this island. And one of
0: the ways that we see this manifest, this double consciousness manifest, is that he knows that the rules don't apply. To to him, not in the sense that he can break the rules with impunity, the way that we often might mean that, but that although Karen Russell does not use the word lynch or lynching in this story, the image of lynchings is everywhere in this story. It appears several times, at least three times in this in this novella. The doctor imagines that his fate is going to be hanging from one of these dark pine trees. But when he imagines that, that is not the judicial punishment for the crime that he's been accused of as it would be decided by the Council of Ten in Venice. If that's going to happen to him, that is going to be an extrajudicial punishment taken outside of the course of the operated, uh, outside of the normal operation of the law by the people on this island. And so although she never uses the word lynch here, the doctor's worried about being lynched. He's worried that because of who he is, because of the color of his skin, he is not going to get due process in this justice system.
1: Right. I mean, and that's another real fear that he carries. And, and his response to that is then to after internalizing the otherness of himself from other people, he's going to end his own life rather than let somebody else do it to him. We don't get as much
0: inside the doctor's head at that moment as I would have liked, although maybe that's simply because he really has succumbed to you know madness and the, the, the classic weird fiction sense of it at this point. But I do think he has to be thinking about that Brandon and also I think he's thinking about protecting his family as well because you know there are ways that he does still participate in society he you know is married he has a family you know these are you know recognized right his marriage is legal is his, his children are really you know recognized as his children and his legal heirs and and so on he does have a role in the community here as as well these are things that really serve to humanize him or at least humanize him for us the audience which i think is really important from a from a Craft perspective, at least. The other thing I want to talk about here uh, on race, and this maybe is going to bring us into thinking about class, is this bit about Yuri Demosto's Black ancestry. It just shows up in this one scene, and it is something that only the doctor thinks about. We don't really see anyone else taking any kind of stock of the fact that this boy has maybe some physiological indications of Black ancestry, yet it seems like it's a pretty big deal to the doctor. And I think, as I said in the recap episode, this has to be here to show us that the treatment of the doctor is not, although it is all coming in terms of his race, it is perhaps not solely about
1: race. Yeah. I mean, this, this part of the story is really fascinating he's kind of the authority figure asking the boy to respond to his own question of who do I say that you are. And I think there's a little bit of projection taking place here that this boy was chosen to be the posthumous surgeon of Lastovo and to get training here on on Black Corfu because of the expression of these genetic characteristics that indicate he is of a different racial heritage than maybe the rest of the family or the family has kind of a mixed racial genetic line. Um, and I think that he sees that readily almost as though he's seeing that the boy is being punished for expressing these traits, and that's why he was chosen. So that's the doctor projecting his own situation onto Yure da. De- you're right, a musto, but I think the complexity of class comes into play here. That like this is not actually a celebrated job, no matter where you live. The outbreak on Lestovo has really only served to demonstrate the failures of the aging and blind surgeon. And it calls up the need to have a new surgeon take his place. And the one they chose is the least the person they have the least respect for maybe because he demonstrates these racial traits and maybe the doctor on some level is hoping that he will end up in the same sort of position as himself though his jealousy and psychological projection are really what this scene is about yeah i did wonder
0: why the the 13 aristocratic families on the island of Lestovo sent one of their own to to get this training to come back to the island and fill this role when here on on Cortula, it is uh, certainly an underclass role. But I wonder if it is merely an underclass role simply actually because the doctor himself is is Black, because he, he can't be a member of the aristocracy. And we just know that this position of posthumous surgeon has been unfilled on this island for a long time. And it's this aging Jesuit priest who says, yeah, we could probably have one of those maybe this is a job that nobody really particularly likes to do because you got to go to this Neolithic cave that's far away and and do that but we should train someone to to do that but I wonder if the aristocratic families on the island next door actually think that they want to make this job a prestigious job the way that that surgeon you know is actually a prestigious job I I was I was I was unsure what was going on with that
1: yeah, I mean, I think the the Jesuit priest slash doctor was doing this himself, and so it's not just that this is an underclass job, but I think that this is what the doctor has internalized that he can't train as a real doctor, so he's doing this fake doctor work, even though he's capable of it, and he's just full of of resentment. Um, and I think resentment is really what characterizes this doctor, even though, you know, yes, it is absolutely unjust that he is not able in the society to rise to the level of his potential. Um, but I think the Jesuit priest was was trying to... I mean, the priest gave him this book, which we didn't mention in the recap, which is Priceless, um, so it's clear that there was some kind of affection there. I'm not going to stop making Count of Monte Cristo references, I think, <laughs> in here, but it's it's the Abbé here and and uh, Dante's sort of relationship as well, um, you know, and not not to mention the people in the town coming and and uh, charging. You know, the Dante's character with this injustice in the caves. I mean, this is this story is really pulling on the great sort of Dumasian injustices <laughs> that fuel his, his great works of literature. But, um, there's great adventure stories, I guess. I don't want to just purely say they're literature, but yeah, I think that, the, that that is also meant to call to mind that sort of relationship as well and heighten the injustice of the society.
0: Well, I'm going to see your uh, classic literary reference here and and uh, raise you a Star Trek and a Superman reference as I transition us into the uh, the next thing on my outline here, which is to talk about rumor and obsession because r- rumor is clearly a huge thing that's going on in this story. It's not just that there are, you know, that this rumor going around and that it uh, it it ends up really destroying the doctor. The way that Russell narrates this, she, personifies the rumor, right? She has the doctor envisioning the rumor as a a doppelganger of himself walking around the, the town as being someone who exists in this community alongside him. And only one of them can survive, right? In the at the end, one of them is going to have to disappear. This is, you know, like I, I was envisioning this as, you know, Kirk versus Kirk or Superman versus Superman. Here, that's the that's the reference I want to make, right? That we've actually got like two bodies of the protagonist walking around. That's not literally true, but that is the way it's narrated. That's the way the Doctor is is thinking about this. I thought that was a, just from a craft perspective, a really uh, a really powerful way to
1: go about doing this. I did too. I was blown away by her description of rumor and the creation of otherness and how we are shaped by multiple you know, perspectives and also inner subjectivity. This is one of the most kind of cogent and coherent expressions of these ideas that I've ever come across in any story that I've ever read. And I loved it. I was just blown away by the way she handled the Concepts really, not just of double consciousness, as we talked about, but also intersubjectivity, perception, and the way we relate to one another in community, and the toxic danger of turning people in our community into others so we can benefit from that. I thought it was beautiful and, and really rather astonishing. Yeah, astonishing is
0: exactly the right word for it. It was a really awesome part of this story. And I think it really serves to highlight that although there are all of these obstacles set up for the doctor because of his race and because of his class, that he's not being treated the way that he thinks he ought to be treated. In fact, frankly, he's not being treated the way he ought to be treated, the way any human has the, the right to expect to be treated. But it's not actually society itself or the institutions that seem really to be his undoing. It is that the people close to him believe these accusations, namely his, his wife, uh, also his daughters, uh, and then also the the members of the elite, uh, in fact, particularly like right the, the family uh, whose daughter this was, it's that they believe these accusations. It's that really is his undoing, right? It, it is internal. This is a, a story that is, a, this is a story that actually works both as being about a Kafkaesque nightmare and an external torment that comes from a, a malfunctioning, a dysfunctioning society, but also that comes from within. So in thinking about the story that way, right? I mean, one way we could frame this story or summarize this story is that this is a story about a Black man in the Venetian Republic who has an important position in that Republic, or at least, you know, in this part of it, and is undone by a rumor.
1: And hey, that's the exact plot of Othello, Yeah, I mean, we even get the word more uh, bandied about here. We do. (laughs) Which is fantastic, which of course made me think of Othello. Um, I, you know, I'll be honest, Othello is a Shakespeare play that I am not super familiar with. I've seen the opera twice, I suppose. But, uh, you know, the broad strokes of it, I I am familiar with. and, And I think... It's very clear that Karen Russell is tugging on those strands of story as well. The rumor, the kind of Iago type character whose motivations are hid from us. Uriah Musto is uh, we we really only know uh, the characters external to the Doctor in this story through these mirrored moments that we as readers need to pick up on through these kind of moments of reflectivity. Of reflection. And one of them is recognizing that the doctor and Yuri DeMasto have a very similar temperament. They're both entitled. They both have chips on their shoulders. They both believe they're doing something beneath their what they're capable of, uh, though Yuri DeMasto's sense of that comes from maybe an aristocratic upbringing. Um and that they're both driven in some sense by jealousy and resentment, which is Iago, right? That's Iago's character. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so that that is how I think Karen Russell is pulling is is kind of pulling these threads from the Iago uh, play by by Shakespeare. But I, I also just want to use this to highlight the important. Uh, the importance of these mirror moments in the story that we learned about D'Amosto from the doctor's own senses of jealousy and resentment, his projection onto that character. We get the encounter with Peter Nikonitich reflected in the encounter with the bear that we're having this kind of uh, almost... Uh, spiritual sort of threading of the story of of what's happening in the world through these kind of odd, almost spiritual reflection moments. I, I love the way that you're you're casting
0: you know, the teenaged Yuri here in the role of Yago, and I think that that's right. I mean, Yago is in some ways one of the more complex Shakespeare villains because we don't really understand his his motives. His motives really are just that he's mad. And uh, he wants to do something about it. He doesn't actually have a concrete objective that he's trying to attain for himself by undoing Othello in in, in the play. He's just... Trying to get vengeance for the sake of vengeance because he's mad. He's not really trying to do something positive for himself. And that does seem to be what Yuri is doing as well. He's just mad and he he just wants to get his vengeance on this person that he thinks is maltreating him. And Yago also just spins this web of lies and is super manipulative. And although we don't really get the story from Yuri's perspective at all, we could go back to the, you know, the plot question that I, I started us off with and wonder about this story from Yuri's perspective. We know that he is, you know, suddenly remembering new details that didn't come out before. And it is similar to what Iago does in this story as well. that is spin this web of, of falsehood because he's not really trying to accomplish anything other than his own vengeance. I hadn't really thought about the ways in which he is Iago because really I was you know focused on the way in which the doctor is Othello. I mean I characterized the parallel there as being, you know, that they both are undone by this rumor, but to be clear, Othello and the doctor here they're driven to madness and also suicide by rumors and and the rumors are are false certainly in Othello and you and I both think they are false here in this story as well, though other listeners may have the listeners may have felt differently than that some listeners anyway. But the other thing we should say, too, about the parallels with Othello is that, right, Othello kills his wife. And the doctor does not do that, but he does endanger his daughter, right? So one part of being a victim of these rumors is killing or endangering, harming someone that you love, and then having to to commit suicide. But it's not obvious as you're going through this. This doesn't feel like it's a direct adaptation of Othello. It's not a weird fiction version of Othello. So those parallels are really, I think, quite rich. And uh, it was really a joy for me to see the way that, that Russell had done that.
1: Yes, I, I, I really agree. I mean, I, I love that element of this story. And I think that the way in which the Doctor is driven to madness is his inability to kind of materially impact or even on the level of changing people's minds the world anymore that his, his madness is really the result of a total disenfranchisement and and I think you see that also kind of taking place in in the in the works of Othello as well that they're they become completely they're already on the edge and then they become completely disenfranchised. It does not take much for them to lose what is already a fragile position in the in the order of things.
0: Well, I also want to think about the other Shakespeare play that takes place in Venice. That's the The Merchant of Venice, because I think that Russell has that in mind as well. Because in Othello, we don't get a lot of big monologues from Othello about the way that he's being treated. A lot of that happens more in uh, dialogue. One of the motifs that Shakespeare is working with is the line between human and animal And whether Othello as a more as a Black man, is an animal or a human, it's a real theme, real motif of that play. And that's certainly happening here in this story. But we don't get a big, powerful monologue about that. Uh, We are getting a lot of that here in this story, right? We get a lot of the Doctor thinking about his value and his merit and how he should be able to be... A fully recognized part of this society, how he should be able to be the doctor because he is a better doctor than the actual doctors above. And this all really felt to me like the famous Shylock speech from the Merchant of Venice, right? The hath not a Jew eyes, hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? There was a lot of that in this story as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I was I was gonna say uh, where are the three boxes, but I think <laughs> uh, I think your parallel works a lot better than, than the direction I was going it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, well now that we have uh, we've done with the Shakespeare, and we went from Dumas to uh, Superman to Shakespeare, I think that's a that's a nice arc there in terms of uh, literary references we wanted to explore in this story. But uh, I just got one last question here, Brandon. Did you have a particular uh, piece of music uh, that you were listening to repeatedly while, while reading and working on this story this week?
1: What a good question. I'll, I'll tell you what, I've been listening to a lot of piano music this week. Uh, on on YouTube, there's so many great like classical music channels that just like, concentrate on one composer. And I was listening to a lot of Mendelssohn's piano music. Uh, and this surprised me. I mean, this is a total aside. It was super fitting for like weird fiction. And the reason why that is, is because, uh, some of the motifs in Mendelssohn's piano music were, uh, I don't know. "Quoted," I suppose, is the correct term <laughs> by John Williams to create the Harry Potter score. Uh, so oh, wow. it kind of had this great sort of eerie, uh, eerie and delightful, and it's a kind of pseudo whimsical, magical feel. That's the result of of John Williams, uh, you know, always stealing from classical composers to create motifs, and and uh, you know that was that was kind of fun and surprising to me as I was working on this story. Yeah, what what particular piano piece was that? Do you remember, I don't know. I had a three-hour playlist playing <laughs> of all of his piano concertos. So, <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> well, I will just go listen to all of it to find out. It's all—it's all over the place. I mean, he just has—he had Mendelssohn seems to be into this—this this one sort of motif himself uh, that I heard repeated a lot.
0: And Mendelssohn is actually a composer I don't know very well, so I've, I've been wanting to check out Mendelssohn for a long time. Well, I, I had a particular piece of music that was my soundtrack for this story as well, and this was the, the Isle of the Dead by Rachmaninoff. This is actually a pretty early Rachmaninoff piece, so it's it's late romantic rather than than 20th century, and it is a symphonic piece. It's a symphonic poem. It's not three hours long, It's it's 20 minutes long, so I really did have it just on constant repeat. And what's great about this, I mean, it's a beautiful piece of music, but thematically, what's great about this piece of music is that it's inspired by the Arnold Berklin painting of the the same name, which itself uses imagery from ancient Greek religion to show uh, an island with a a temple and this figure rowing a small boat to it. And the the island itself is modeled on a small island near Corfu, the the big Corfu proper, not black Corfu, but still, right, like that association made it pretty perfect, uh, you know, into my mind. And it's actually one of my favorite pieces is a music of all time. It's something that Brent and I discovered our freshman year of high school just by scouring our library's classical music CD collection because you know yes. we were we were we were teenagers once. You could burn and, those
1: uh, CDs back then,
0: absolutely. And I I have listened to this a lot ever since. It's just a beautiful, haunting piece of music, and the imagery of the pine trees here on this island it just you know called to me. So I highly recommend that to accompany listeners' uh, reading of this story. Though I'm going to check out the Mendelssohn as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, Rachmaninoff is one of my favorites. He was somebody who, you know, just at the end of my uh, uh, piano lesson taking, I was doing a lot of Rachmaninoff. But uh, I haven't listened to too much of his other work besides his piano work. So I will definitely be checking that out.
0: Well, I'm I'm not really a symphonic person, and I, I love Rachmaninoff's piano music. Also, his his cello music is some of my, my favorite. But, uh, uh, we are uh, we're veering into <laughs> Glenn and Brandon talking about music, which might be an episode we do someday. I actually would love to do an episode about uh, weird fiction and and music. Other people have suggested this to us, though. I think they clearly had in mind metal, not classical music, and I, I have <laughs> right. no qualification for that. But uh, someday maybe we'll do a uh, classical music, classical music, and film music episode. But uh, I don't know if we're planning out other episodes. I think that means that we're done with this one.
1: So that's going to do it. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects as always at claytemplemedia.com. If you'd like to commission an episode, we'd love for you to do that. So get in touch with us and we'll talk.
0: And while you're on the internet getting in touch with us, please come on over to the Clay Temple Forums or our subreddit and let us know what you thought of this story and the the illusions and references that we talked about here. And maybe especially let us know whether or not you think the doctor's actually guilty of the thing that he's been accused of. This is an awesome story. I would love to keep talking about it with people uh, so next time, we're going to be back with something. This is, uh, you know, with these commissioned episodes, we don't always end up know With these commissioned <laughs> episodes, we don't always know where we're going to end up throwing them on the main feed because, you know, they show up on Patreon for the people who've commissioned them as soon as we're done with them. But you can always come to the website and uh, look at the schedule and see what is next. And hey, probably I said it on the last regularly scheduled episode anyway. So until whatever is next, we greet you and say farewell.